0: Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study here at Lighthouse Church of God, audio version. Let's take a moment and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come together to study your word. Give us open hearts, open minds. Let your spirit teach us, guide us, speak to us tonight. Reveal your holy truth. Us the ones who participate tonight and the one who teaches and gives us understanding in all these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 4. Last week we uh, concluded our study of the epistles here, the pastoral epistles of Christ in chapters 2 and 3. And now we are moving into the... Uh, I guess the part of Revelation that really gets everybody excited, the stuff that's uh, more dramatic and more uh, impactful. And so we're going to study Chapter 4 tonight. You should have received your email with the study notes for tonight. If you did not get it, you can email me at bishopoldridge at Gmail. Dot com and I'll try to get the notes out to you tonight. But uh, there's a big transition that takes place between Chapter Three and Chapter Four, so I want to kind of set the stage. I want to start. I want to start by trying to explain, or at least you know, help you to understand some of the eschatological positions uh, regarding the revelation of Jesus Christ the word eschatology is a tough one to say it's an even tougher one to, uh, to explain but the eschatology deals with the last things the final things the what we today would call the end times the last days that's what eschatology deals with and of course, you know that uh, uh, anything involving the end times, the like these days—that's that's, that's a big business today. With all that's going on in the world, everything that's happening—it's uh, um, people always wondering, people are always asking, "What does this mean? What does that mean? Is this part of it? Is that part of it?" And so, I kind of wanted to give you a little bit of a breakdown of the different uh, approaches that the church has taken towards eschatology over the years. Uh, I've given you uh, nine um, terms that we want to understand, and uh, these are all positions that have been held by or are currently held by uh, Christian churches, Christian denominations, Christian teachers— uh, these are all um, defensible from a scriptural perspective in some cases. Uh, none of these would be considered heresy. none of these would be considered a reason to break fellowship, uh, but you're going as we go through them, you're going to realize that we have uh, we do have some differences of opinion and I want to make sure when I uh, talk about uh, prophecy, um, the only way to know for sure who's right is for the prophecy to be fulfilled. Then we'll find out. Until then, uh, the differences of opinions are are going to be had. We're not always going to agree on what everything means, but uh, good Christian folks, spirit-filled folks ought to be able to get along anyway. All right, so position one is the preterist position. That is the perspective that believes that uh, uh, most, if not all, of the book of Revelation was fulfilled during the generation that followed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This would be uh, um, that 40 to 50 year period of the apostles, the growth of the church uh, coupled with the fall of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jewish people. So a prayerist a, a person, a person who believes this uh, idea, believes that all the things we're going to read about have already taken place, that they took place uh, in that first generation of the church, that, uh, the generation that John was actually writing to in, in the book of Revelation. And he's writing about things that were happening, were going to happen in the lives of those people. Position number two is the historicism or the historicist perspective. Uh, those who hold this position believe that the things of the Book of Revelation are fulfilled progressively over the entire age of the church. So they would tell you that over the last two thousand years, uh, many of these things have already happened. They've already been fulfilled as the, as the history uh, in the history of the church and that everything's just kind of building up to the last event, which is the return of Jesus Christ. Position number three is the futurist, or futurism. This perspective believes that the majority, basically everything from chapter four on, will be fulfilled in the future when Christ actually returns to earth. So the futurist would say, Uh, Beginning at chapter 4, these things have not yet happened. They're not going to happen until it's actually time for Jesus to return. Position number 4 is the idealist or the idealism movement. Um, They believe that the whole book of Revelation is allegorical. They believe it's a, a, a description of uh, the 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 general battle between good and evil between God and 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 Satan and, and that it's uh, really it's more like a parable or an allegory. They don't expect anything uh, in this book to actually literally happen. Uh, so you know, in, in their mind, an earthquake is not an earthquake. It's It's some change of power in the heavenly realm, that sort of thing. Position number five is something called premillennialism. This is the belief that Christ will return before the millennial age. Millennial means 1,000. The book of Revelation speaks of a 1,000-year period which Christ rules on the earth. So a premillennialist is someone who believes that Christ will return before that age. There are basically three types of premillennials, and they are divided basically over when they believe the rapture and resurrection of the righteous will happen. So you have one group that believes it will happen before the tribulation begins. You have one group that believes it will happen sometime during the tribulation. And you have one group that believes it will happen at the end, after the tribulation. Uh, all of those perspectives are still pre-millennial because the tribulation itself happens before the millennial reign. Position number six is post-millennialism. That's the position that Christ will return after the millennial age. Position number seven is amillennialism. Which believes that the millennial age is a spiritual age and descriptive of the entire age of the church. So you could pair up, you know, number seven with number four or number two. Uh, so if you're a historicist or an idealist, you're probably a millennialist. Um, position number eight is something called dispensationalism. Uh, you, I don't know how many of you have even heard of this or. But this is a very dominant, especially in America, especially in evangelical circles, is this belief that Israel and the church, and this is just one of the beliefs of dispensationalism, but when it comes to prophecy, when it comes to revelation, a dispensationalist will believe that Israel and the church are distinct and separate covenantal entities with exclusive. Prophetic promises and fulfillments in other words there's there's Israel's path and there's the church's path and 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 they are separate and God will deal with the church in one way, deal with Israel in another and then position number nine is the fulfillment theology sometimes called the replacement theology and basically it believes that the church is the true Israel of God and the legitimate descendants of Abraham. By faith, the new covenant has fulfilled the old covenant and the church has inherited the promises and prophecies of both. So a person who believes this is basically saying that uh, uh, Israel and the church are the same thing, that the church has has stepped into that role that Israel was called to play as the light of the world, the priest, kingdom of priests, all of those things. And that basically, God is done with the national or ethnic Israel. Uh, that it's just now the church, and that's that's it. So, those those are the main positions. Uh, there's about a million offshoots. I don't. <laughs> it just there's no way to take all the time to talk about every possible variation of these perspectives. Uh, but these are the main ideas that uh, govern how people interpret the book of Revelation. Now, most Pentecostals, most evangelicals, most fundamentalists, most uh, classical Pentecostals, let me say it that way, your Church of God, your your Pentecostal holiness, your Assembly of God type Pentecostals, uh, take the premillennial futurist perspective. In other words, we mostly believe that the events that begin in chapter 4 have yet to take place. And we have reasons why we believe that, um, but uh, we're going to go through that as we get into this chapter. So why do we take the futurist premillennial view? Why are we not preterists? Why are we not historicists? Well. In some passages, we are. Let me, let me start there. If you go back to Matthew chapter 24, there's one specific prophecy that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 that was literally fulfilled in the generation of, of those who heard it. And that's the one about uh, the temple in Jerusalem, not one stone being left upon another. That actually happened. In Matthew twenty four are are in the lifespan of of the, the early church. The Romans invaded Jerusalem in uh, about uh, A.D. Six, or Israel in about A.D. sixty seven. Judea they uh, they conquered Jerusalem and they did tear down the temple and every stone was was moved out of its place. So you say, well, that, if that happened, then that means that all of this stuff has happened. Well, it means that that event has happened. But for the premillennialists, for the futurists, there are two specific prophecies, what we consider the two most important and the two most necessary of all the end-time events that have not taken place. There's, There's nothing in history that can be interpreted as these events taking place. The first of these is the physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Uh, I think we would have noticed if Jesus had come back to to this earth I, I believe we would have that would have made some news uh, since that has not happened we we believe that these things are yet to become in the future the second is the bodily resurrection uh, those two events go together the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead these are the two key prophetic end-time events, that there is no historical precedent, no event in history which can be interpreted as fulfilling either one of those. So because of that, because there is no record of Christ returning, and because there is, has been no uh, general resurrection of the dead, we hold to the position that the events beginning in Revelation chapter 4 have yet to take place. All right, so let's look at Revelation chapter 4. When we closed out uh, chapter 3, Jesus was standing at the door. He was knocking. He was asking to come in. Uh, he was making the promises to those who, uh, who would overcome And we begin chapter 4. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which much take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald, and around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne... There was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. All right, so that's chapter four. All right, so... He begins with the reference to a door open in heaven. So his first vision, the vision of the seven uh, churches, the vision of Christ and the message of the seven churches, uh, appeared to him while he was on the Isle of Patmos. So he was on uh, physical ground when he saw that image, when he saw those visions. But now his attention has been, has been redirected from earth to heaven. Now this open door, this may be a reference to the, uh, to the church of Philadelphia. Notice in chapter 3 there, the message to the church of Philadelphia, Christ promised to set before them an open door that no one could shut. He also promised to keep them from the hour of trial. So if this is a reference to that, we have sort of a, a, uh, an, a fulfillment of, of that promise. He also hears the sound of a trumpet. Now, the sound of a trumpet is associated in Scripture both with the rapture and the resurrection of the righteous. So if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, both mention hearing what, they, what sounds like a trumpet at the time of the transformation, at the time of the change, at the time of the resurrection of the dead, John is transported into the heavenly temple as the focus shifts to the heavenly throne room, and he is shown what will happen after this. This appears to refer to the previous vision of the seven churches, so it's very clear now I told you last time, or when we were talking earlier about John's visions, the throne visions are a very unique vision in Scripture. We have several examples: Ezekiel chapter one, Isaiah chapter six, Daniel chapter seven, and all of those visions of the throne. You see the the same sort of uh, uh, symbols, the same sort of of, of, of images are recorded. The the glory, the 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 splendor of it. And uh that's what John sees here as well. But there's a couple of new things. There's a couple of new things in John's vision that were not present in Ezekiel's or or Isaiah's visions. And so we want to we want to make a note of that. The, and and we also want to make a note that the throne of God is in a temple. It's over the mercy seat. This is this is uh, all temple imagery that John has seen. And when he talks about what is going to take place after, the th- we ask ourselves, after what? What is the after? And the only uh, the only thing that really uh, fits with what is happening here is. After the, t- after the messages or after the fulfillment of the promises that were given to the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. So let's review that very quickly because you're going to see this all, all of these things you're going to see in the next uh, uh, 17, 18 chapters. The prophecies concerning the overcomers may now be fulfilled. What were those promises? They were in order, promise number one was they will eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. Promise number two is they will not be hurt by the second death. Promise number three is they will eat of the hidden manna. Promise four is they will receive a new name. Promise five is they will be given power over the nations. Promise six, they will be given the morning star. Promise seven, they will be clothed in white garments. Promise 8, their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. Promise 9, their names will be confessed by Jesus before the Father and his angels. Promise 10, they will be kept from the hour of trial which shall come upon the earth. Promise 11, they will be pillars in his temple and bear the name of God and be part of the new Jerusalem. And promise number 12, they will sit with him on his throne. Keep these promises in mind. As we read through the rest of Revelation, you are going to see examples where each of these promises is actually fulfilled or, or referred to in this, in this part of, of John's prophecy. So that's, a, that's really, I think, a strong indicator of the timing of when all of this is going to take place and where the church will be when all of this takes place. The last of those messages uh, spoke of a separation of those who were lukewarm or not ready, and an invitation to come and dine with Jesus. And so it may even be a reference here to the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of chapter 3. So all of this is indicated here in the very first verse Of chapter 4 all right Um, John was John testifies that he was taken up in the spirit similar experiences were had by Elijah Isaiah Ezekiel Daniel and even in the New Testament we know that Philip was taken by the spirit from one place to another and Paul testified about being caught up in the spirit into paradise it is also by the Spirit that living believers will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. So what does he mean when he says he was in the Spirit? It means that he was either, and you know, we have Paul's testimony that he did not know whether he was in his body or out of his body. So we're, we don't know if John has physically been taken into heaven like, uh, like Elijah was or if he has just been taken there in a spiritual sense, but in any case, this lets us know about the awesome power of the Holy Spirit uh, able to to, uh, separate us from the bonds of this world. John is taken to the throne of God in heaven. According to the Scriptures, God's throne is in the heavenly temple, so he comes in. Throne visions speak to the sovereignty and glory of God. He rules from above the mercy seat. And John has been allowed to pass through the veil and see him in his glory. Now notice the description of the one who sits upon the throne focuses on the splendor and glory of his appearance. Like precious stones reflect and magnify the light, the entire spectrum of the one who dwells and unapproachable light is manifested. No physical description of God is adequate. Um, He is spirit. He is light. Uh, You can compare him to the most precious gems in, in all their glory, but it's still not enough. The triune God in his purest form is beyond comprehension. John said in his gospel, no one has ever seen God. Uh, and, and so we understand that what he's seen here is, is, is very unique, very very special, and yet very difficult. No words can truly describe um, the appearance of God. We, we use references, we use things we're familiar with, but it's, it's a, it would be a mistake to think that we have seen or that John has seen and able to communicate all that there is about God's appearance. The reference to the first and last stones of the breastplate of the high priest, the jasper and sardius, are also indicative of the temple setting.
1: Pastor, um Yes. When John um, was uh, with the seven churches, that's I, I trying to understand that part here. When he talking about the seven churches, and when he said, you know, those are uh, Jews and they are not um, sitting at the synagogue of Satan and so forth but uh, I was talking about the Jews, what about the Gentiles how um, would you explain that part here the Gentiles what the
0: Gentiles
1: yeah in, in regards remember, to I about the churches and then with the Jews and so forth well,
0: yes, we know that there was a lot of conflict in the early church uh, between the Jews and the Gentiles, and the Jews were claiming a a priority of the law of Moses. the Jews were claiming a necessity of circumcision and and um, and of following the Jewish uh, ritual to the gentiles and and I think what Jesus was saying to the Gentiles there was that that these people who were claiming claiming this special privilege or claiming uh, this authority or this priority as Jews uh, were not really true uh, uh, Jews in the sense of their relationship with God. Remember, Remember what Paul wrote. And this is where we kind of get into the conflict between Israel and the church. Is Israel, are are Jews and Gentiles really part of the same body? Are they different? And Paul wrote in uh, chapter 9 of Romans, I believe, he uh, he said there that not all Israel is of Israel. Not everyone that is of Israel is truly Israel. That the, the promise was to those by faith, not by blood. So it's, it's not about physical relationship through Abraham. It's about the faith of Abraham existing in, in your heart and mind. And in Galatians, he says that, you know, this, this new covenant, this, this covenant of, which is above, the Jerusalem which is above, includes Jew and Gentile, bond and free, male and female, Greek and barbarian. So the Gentiles come under the covenant of Abraham. They come into the covenant that God made with Israel by faith. Uh, Paul says in chapter 11 of Romans that they were grafted in, that Israel was the trunk, but the Gentiles are the branches. So uh, the argument of needing to go back or go through the Jewish ritual, go through circumcision, go through you know keeping the, the Sabbath, keeping the, the feast days, all that that argument is based on this idea of the Jews having a special priority or special privilege or special authority over the Gentiles, and that's not. Uh, what John is saying, that's not what Paul taught, that the Jews are joint heirs with Christ, that they're fellow heirs of the promises. And so for us as Gentiles, there is no need to return and go back through the old covenant uh, prescriptions. We have a relationship directly through with God, through Jesus Christ, outside of and independent of the laws of Moses, and the Jewish ways. So for the Gentiles, uh, you know, we have respect. We, we honor um, the faithful Jews throughout the generations who preserved the law, who, who uh, kept covenant, kept faith with God. We'll never forget that Jesus himself is Jewish, and uh, we owe a great debt to those who came before us and maintained the covenant, but we are not second-class citizens. We are fully and completely uh, inheritors of the promise. And so that that statement that he will make them who who are lying about what we have to do, uh, come and worship before our feet and know that we are loved, know that we are chosen and just as chosen. Remember the Jewish argument was that they were chosen, that they were special. They were a special treasure to God, a peculiar people exclusive to God. And, and, uh, and that made them, uh, you know, different from everybody else. That made them special. And uh, they believed that God loved them more than he loved anybody else. And, uh, and, and so when we see this statement by Jesus in, in chapter 3, we can see that that was not at all. Uh, what Jesus was talking about. So Gentiles are are present, have been present in the church from the beginning, and are fully and completely part of the covenant uh, through Jesus Christ. Did anyone okay, else on it. that
2: or any other question?
0: Excuse me. Um, that, mean
2: that we had this scripture mentioned that in Jesus Christ you are neither Jew nor Gentile? Yes, that's, that's from Galatians. That is from Galatians.
0: There, there, there is no, and, and, and I want to, you know, this, this sounds sometimes when people we talk about this, you know, it's almost like we're trying to put, uh, you know, put Jews down. That, that's not at all the case. They had a particular... Uh, relationship with God through covenant to bring uh, to preserve the knowledge of God and and to teach the nations about God and to be the people through whom the Messiah would come. But it was always prophesied in the Old Testament that the Gentiles were going to be part of God's redemptive plan and that all of the nations would come. To Jerusalem and all of the nations would come to the house of God and and there would be no distinctions inside the covenant there is no first class second class third class in in the kingdom of God so I think where where the Jews at least at the time of, of revelations writing had gotten a little bit off track was and and again i think paul does paul does the best job of explaining this in romans 9 10 and 11 maybe one day we'll we'll look at that but he said that god had seen basically paul's argument was that god had had seen how israel had, had kind of become proud and had become instead of being the, the servant to the nations instead of teaching the nations about god israel had kind of began to look down on the nations and, and was was uh, was not fulfilling that role that they had been assigned to, and so Paul tells them, or uh, quotes to them, the prophecy in the Old Testament that God intends to provoke them to jealousy by bringing in the Gentiles, bringing in the people who were not of uh, of the Jewish race, in hopes that that would open their eyes, provoke them to jealousy, and make them understand. That the covenant was for everybody, uh, and I still believe. I, I do believe. I, I do believe the church has uh, joined and, and is part of the covenant with Israel. I do believe that those promises are yes and amen, and that we have are entitled to those promises. But Paul, in chapter eleven of Romans, Paul actually. Uh, makes the statement that God has not utterly forsaken or cast off Israel, and that he intends uh, to to bring Israel back and revive Israel. And I think we, we we're going to see that. I think that's part of uh, the things that are going to happen as we get close to the return of Christ, that Israel will be restored not only... Uh, nationally and politically, but spiritually.
2: Uh, Anyone else on that? So, Pastor, here's my take on the Jews and Gentiles in terms of grace and salvation um, with regards to what the Apostle Paul was saying that we all have to come to the same standard in Christ. There's no higher standard for one and there's no lower standard for the other. It's it's, it's, that we have to come to the, 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 the one standard in Christ. So that's my take on the Jews and the Gentiles citation it comes to grace and faith is we all have to come back to that same one holy standard that Christ demands, whether we are Jews or Gentiles. So in other words, Amen. the Jews Yes that's that's my take on the matter. Yes,
0: when when Christ returns or just before Christ returns, um, there will be, uh, I believe, a a real um, revival among Jews, among uh, Israel, but it will not be a restored Mosaic covenant. It will not be going back to the law. Anyone who is saved, anyone who becomes part of the kingdom of God must come through Jesus Christ, there is no other path the that Moses was a servant in the house, Jesus is the son of the house, and uh, the law was our tutor, it was our our schoolmaster to bring us to the knowledge of Christ, and that's not going to change. I know there's a lot of speculation or temple or a new high priest. They're going to start sacrificing animals again, and and I, I don't know if any of that's going to happen. Uh, but that's not going to, But even if they do that, even if they build a new temple and sacrifice a red heifer and do all those things that you know the, the prophecy teachers tell us they're going to do, none of that's going to do them any good. Uh, it must be Christ, faith in Christ. That is the only means of salvation for the Jew, for the Gentile, um, forever. And so uh, whatever God's plan is for Israel, um, it will involve and be centered around the person of Jesus Christ.
2: I think it's evil, says says that, Lo, I come in the bottom of the book. And then a little, little later on in the text, it says that he took away the first, that he might establish the second. So, um, Talking about, of course, the, the, the whole covenant, the new covenant that's in Christ.
0: Amen. Yes, absolutely. You know, when I, we were talking at the beginning of class about dispensationalism versus fulfillment theology and that sort of thing. You know, you've you got to kind of be a little bit careful because, you know, the Bible, you know, I mentioned Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. You know, Paul makes the case for both. In chapter nine, he says that not everybody who's part of it, not everyone in Israel is of Israel. So that there's a that there's a spiritual Israel and a, and a and a and a physical Israel. So that's that's fulfillment theology. That is that is the church are the descendants of Abraham by faith. That's you know that's Galatians. That's James chapter two. That's you know that's 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 everything that. We believe when it comes to being justified by faith, the just shall live by faith. That's all. That's Romans four. That's all. Uh, the church as the new Israel, the, the branches grafted into the tree. But then Paul turns around in chapter eleven and says, "But God has not cast off Israel. So God still has a plan for the Jewish people. That's dispensationalism. That's so. You, you, you again when I when I say." that these, these eschatological perspectives are all, in one way or another, um, supported scripturally, and that good Christians can believe any and all of these things. That's what I'm talking about. The Bible makes the case in both, uh, in, in both forms. So, again, once we see everything fulfilled, everything completed, Christ has returned, it will all make perfect sense until then, we sort of see through the glass darkly and make the best uh, estimates that we can. All right, so the next thing that he sees there is the 24 thrones and the 24 elders. Uh, they're clothed in white. They're wearing crowns. They're sitting on thrones. Uh, the number 24 is significant. It's the number of priestly orders. Uh that serve in the temple. So remember, we're talking about a temple vision, a throne vision from the temple. Who attends the temple? The priest. Who are the priests? Who are the ones that attend the temple? Uh, in the Old Covenant, in the Levitical Covenant, there were 24 orders that would take turns. Each, each I think it was two-week uh, assignments. So that um, number 24... Can also, in uh, some people, interpret it to mean twelve of the church age, twelve of the uh, old covenant age. But I think I think we can look at it and see a little bit clearer that the word elders uh, are an elder is a representative leader of a community. The word elder is is never used for anything other than human beings in the Bible. Um, White robes are used throughout Scripture to symbolize righteousness. Crowns are mentioned all over the New Testament as reward for victories. And we have the promise in chapter 3, verse 21, of those who overcome will sit on the thrones with Christ. So I think when we put all that together, I think we're pretty safe in, in, in interpreting the 24 elders Uh, as a representative order of believers who have received their rewards and are now seated with Christ. So that raises the question, no mention is made of how they were chosen or how they came to be present in the heavenly temple. Um, We're not told (laughs) how they got there, but certainly the rapture of the church could explain their presence there. Remember, I said there were some differences between Ezekiel's vision, Isaiah's vision, and and uh, and John's. This is one of those differences. In Ezekiel's vision and in Isaiah's vision, they both see the throne, they both see the, the glorious appearance, they both see the angels, the cherubim, but John's vision is the only one of the throne visions that includes the 24 elders, the saints. And so I think that's very significant. To me, that's very significant in, in, in sort of introducing the idea that the church, or at least a representative portion of the church, has somehow been taken into heaven and has come. And the, the fact that they have crowns and white robes indicate that they have passed through the judgment seat of Christ. And so, um, even though it's not mentioned directly here, I think something very significant has happened. Something has happened to the church. When we last saw it in chapter 3, it was on earth. It was going through trials and tribulations. It was going through uh, doctrinal battles. It was dealing with persecutions. In chapter 4, we see what appears to be the church, but now the church is glorified. Now it has received the white robes and the crowns. Now it's sitting on the thrones. So if we ask the question, what can explain the difference between chapter 3 and chapter 4? What events could have taken place to move the church from its earthly position to its heavenly position? Well, the Bible only really gives us uh, one option, and that is that the church has been has been taken up, has been caught up to the throne of God. So, uh, again, I told you before, the rapture is not dealt with directly in John. So, the best we can do is make some educated guesses. But this is certainly one place where it would seem it would seem to to fit. Does anyone have a a comment or question there?
2: I just wanted to say that this is a theory that was taught over the last 50 years, that the church was raptured between the third and fourth chapter of Revelation. And on earth it was uh, seen by John, but in heaven it was seen in the fourth chapter. This is a typical teaching from the years that I've followed prophecy.
0: Well, that must be where I heard it from. Then, <laughs> um, no, I, I, you know, we're, 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 we're being careful. I'm being careful. When you take on the responsibility of teaching scripture, one thing you really have to be careful to do is check any prejudices or preconceived ideas, and just teach what's there. Just teach what's actually there. The rapture is not mentioned here directly. So because it's not mentioned here directly, it would be, uh, you know, I, I cannot sit here and tell you, yes, this is when the rapture happens. However, the Bible also tells us to compare Scripture to Scripture. Other Scriptures talk about being caught up. Other Scriptures talk about the judgment seat of Christ. Other Scriptures talk about receiving a robe. Receiving a crown. Uh, other scriptures talk about ruling and reigning with Christ. So if we take all the balance of scriptures and we we put them together, we can we can make an argument. We can make a case, and that's the best we can do. Others can take different scriptures and different perspectives, and they can make their case. And we want to treat everyone respectfully. We don't want to get again. This is this this is a point on which God fearing, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled, blood-washed saints, this is something that they can disagree about and still be in fellowship. I've got, a very, I've got a good friend of mine who is adamant that the rapture takes place at the end of the book of Revelation and not the beginning. But you know what? He's a good friend. He loves Jesus, and it's okay. It gives us something to argue about, and that's kind of fun sometimes.
1: All right, anyone else? Yes, Um I'm just wondering, um, angels, uh, I don't think angels are uh, ever seen in Revelation um, on thrones or wearing crowns. So, um, that would support you. That's verse 8. Um, so, that would support um, the, the view that, of course, Has to be the church. Angels are never really seen, uh, you know, on thrones or wearing crowns.
0: Yes, you're you're correct about that. Um, This position of authority, this sitting on thrones, this ruling and reigning, this was a promise to the church. It was never, never a promise to any angels or any any other beings. So. I think we're comfortable here. I'm comfortable here, uh, and on, on, on believing that these are redeemed, uh, persons, that these are resurrected persons, that these are glorified persons. Uh, you know, some might argue, well, you know, this could just be the soul or the spirit of the person and not their actual body. The body could just be waiting for resurrection. I, I, I believe. Its appointed unto man who wants to die then comes the treasure I believe the presence of robes and crowns indicate the resurrection for these has taken place uh, they have received uh, the actual rewards promised to those who are are resurrected in Christ so I think we're pretty comfortable and again we're not giving we're not we're not saying in any way that we're being dogmatic that this is a matter of of uh, you know, we're going to preach this, and anyone who doesn't preach it is a heretic. It's not 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 nothing like that. It's just we're trying to keep a balance here of scripture and doing the best we can to to try to get a clear picture of what John is seeing. He's looking at the throne of God, and he is seeing, these glorious beings before the throne of God. And who are they? They are they're not angels as as uh, as the brothers said. Uh they're not, you know, just uh you know disembodied spirits. They're they're actual people. And the, and again that 24 orders thing, it may be uh that, you know, each one of us will have an opportunity uh to serve before the throne of God for a period of, of time you because know, these orders do uh, repeat themselves and replace themselves so uh, we may all uh, be there in eternity and and won't that be uh, won't that be something amen all right the throne itself is is not just uh, uh, static it's dynamic it's full of dynamic energy and power it's light and sound and activity, emanating from the throne, letting us know that God is continually interacting with his creation, sustaining, directing, and empowering the very fabric of existence. And so you see that thunder and lightning and voices and all of this. This is this gives us a picture of intense activity and power. Uh, you know, God ruling and interacting directly with With the creation, we see the seven spirits of God. We've seen that before. A reminder uh, of that menorah, that lampstand that was uh, in the temple. We see the sea of crystal, uh, which uh, corresponds to the bronze basin, the bronze laver, that stood between the altar and the door of the temple. The cleansing necessary to in order to approach the throne of God. The tells us, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. And then we see the cherubim. The cherubim are really some mysterious, I guess we call them angels. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure angel is the best way to refer to a cherubim, but uh, these creatures have have appeared at different places in the Scripture. They were present in the Garden of Eden. Uh, They they appeared in really... uh, Symbolic form; they were carved uh, representations of the cherubim on the mercy on the on the golden top of the mercy seat. Um, They they are, from what we can gather from scripture, the cherubim are throne angels. They are the angels who actually carry the throne and attend the presence of God. Now, um, the description of them is 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 very difficult to. Visualize um, four faces, six wings, full of eyes. It's you know you you see this if you go back and read the description Ezekiel gives of them in chapter one of Ezekiel. um, It's really uh, difficult to to understand what kind of creatures these are. These are mighty, mighty creatures of immense power immense glory Uh, and yet they serve the throne of god they serve the throne of god they attend the presence of god and they cry out uh that familiar refrain holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and we can we can again interpret their praise the threefold cry as a recognition of the three members of the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, and uh, what John appears to be seeing on the throne is not merely the Father, or not merely the Son, but the Trinity itself in its full uh, connected. Interactive glory. Uh, I can't even imagine. You know, my mind just my mind just, just is boggled by what this really is going to look like when we see it for ourselves. Uh, and then we see that the 24 elders are also there with the four living creatures. And of course, he concludes the chapter with the worship song of heaven, the worthiness of God because of his creative work and his sustaining work of creation. He is taking the worship of creation, the worship of all that he has made, and this tells us a little bit about the place that worship is going to fill in heaven. And it tells us even more that worship what John is actually seeing here, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week in chapter five, the main bulk of Revelation from you know chapter four down through really verse, chapter sixteen, uh, John appears to be attending a very special heavenly worship service. Uh, something has brought all of these creatures and, and the angels and, and, the, and the elders and the church, something has brought them all together. You know, this is something on the scale of a, a, a feast uh, of tabernacles, a, a, a holy convocation. All of God's people have been brought together to worship. And then we're going to see that there's a word that's going to come, a message that's going to be preached, and then we're going to see some sacramental things happen, and then we're going to see how all of this impacts life and on earth and the kingdoms of the world. Um, I think at this point we're going to we're going to we're going to come to a close for tonight, but we'll take. Any comments or questions that anyone has at this point, and um, and then we'll deal with Chapter Five next week. Does anyone have anything, uh, any questions or anything to share on Chapter
1: Four? Well, sir, um, one more thing, I want to ask about uh, when John did get the vision, and he was writing, and he said, and he said to write these into a book. And then some of it he said, "Don't write it what that was what that was meant to to him
0: yes the the part which you're referring to where he says, don't write what the the that's I think in John chapter ten where he tells them to to not uh write down the things that the thunders had spoken um we are not that far yet, but the revelation yes, that, know that, the thing that yeah, the things that John was told to write, uh, he did write. And, and record yeah. and Revelation is the record of those things. What he was told not to write in the book he was commanded to eat um, yeah. is, is something that was just not meant. And, of course, um, we can speculate under why certain things God, you know, God always keeps some things to himself. He tells us what we need to know, but he he tells us everything we know, but he doesn't tell us everything he knows. And so Mm. there's a part of this that is a mystery. There's a part of this that was not shared or not to be shared. And uh, we have to kind of accept the sovereignty of God on that. But the parts that he was allowed to write down, uh, we have the record here and we can... we can be blessed by what God allowed to be shared. But uh, when we get into uh further chapters, we'll go into that a little bit deeper, and, and maybe we can come up with a couple of th- reasons why some things may not have been for John to share. All right. Well, praise the Lord. I appreciate you being with us tonight. Everyone, have a good week.
1: a production of the lighthouse church of god thank you for listening we hope you have been blessed you are welcome to join us for service by calling 701-801-6266 every sunday at ten fifteen a.m for more information or to support our ministry visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org god bless you until next time This is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.